plane somewhere about uh, it was about uh, it seemed to be it was centered on the domestication of wolves a wolf into a dog became you know from the wild and this one uh, young tribe member got separated from the tribe was living in the wild and you know met the wolf and the wolf was injured and protected the wolf and that kind of a story you know and uh, And that was the first dog then, was the idea. It was fairly well done. Um, but uh, there were no other domestic animals in the scene. So it seemed to be the, the impression that they were trying to give was that that was the beginning of the domestication of wild animals on the part of humans wolves to dogs. I don't know if that has much support, but it was a female and she should not turn out to be pregnant. And so, you know, then all the pups were... First generation. Yeah. And the, the, the end of the movie, I think they're all going out hunting with the dogs in the lead, you know, oh. assisting them instead of being at odds with them. Yeah, humans are pretty good at it. Making up for what they lack with physical prowess and getting other species like bovines and canines to assist them in their endeavors to survive. Yeah, and uh, it just seems to be this Tatasta region where certain species of animals can thrive by domestication and the humans can thrive by the domestication mm. as well. And it seems that the vegan philosophy is, is, as a philosophy anyway, I don't know that well, but it seems to eliminate that. As if that's... Unethical. Unethical and, uh, yeah, unnatural and... But it's and kind of contradictory because they speak about dogs as domestic animals and they really love them and protect yeah, them, exactly. so... Yeah, I had this discussion with... Uh, in in, in Madhavan, I was invited <clears throat> the Blue Spirit, which is uh, mm -hmm. the premier like yoga retreat uh, center in Costa Rica. The uh, owner there, or one of the, the leading guy, I had met him before, and so anyway, he invited me over to meet this couple who had years ago started this um, Jivan Mukta yoga a center, not only, I thought they only had a center in New York, but they actually have a whole system. Yeah, yeah. They have centers in Europe and so forth. They were originally 
influenced by Neem Karoli Baba. Mm. And so they had a... Yeah, yeah, exactly. They had a... a uh, she took a liking to me. She was real nice. The husband was previously a sannyasi from some Baba, maybe Neem Karoli Baba or somebody. And then he was... The way he told the story is, well, I took sannyas and then, you know, I was sent back to America and it like, didn't work, you know, because there was no system, you know, to support or anything like that, you know. So he was still, like, seemed to be, like, psychologically wounded from all of that, although it was years and years ago. But he was talking to me because I was a sannyasi, you know. Anyway, so it was interesting. And, uh, and as I said, that was their original, seems to be their original, like, introduction to... Yeah, Eastern philosophy and so forth. But then they became converted to the um, Balaba Sampradaya. Mm. I think through Shamdas, the Kirtanir. Mm-hmm. And so they they had, uh, I'd say, uh, you know, a loose understanding of the Balaba teaching and so forth. That they, that they, uh, Contemporized or modified, you know. Um, but anyway, that aside, there and relative to the point there, was super focus was vegan veganism, and the blue spirit. Uh, when they come down and they bring their whole, you know, retreat, then they then they the whole menu while they're there is vegan. Otherwise, it's not. So they, they catered to them, so I guess they're pretty big uh, clients there. Yeah. Anyway, they had a big lunch and they chatted and, and, and she, she was going on and on about the vegan thing. And uh, I was polite and whatnot. And they gave me plenty of opportunity. There were questions they were asking me and I was answering. It was nice. But, uh, you know, she uh, felt like having cows like it's like slavery or something. And you make them indentures, at least they have their own life. You know, so I gave my explanation and whatnot. In the end, I asked, well, you know, do you have any pets? Yeah, I got a dog and a couple of dogs. It's like, you know, the whole thing seems to like fall apart, you know? I mean, as far as her particular thrust was and so forth. So, again, I'm not... That's part of the vegan idea and animal rights idea is that, that get out of this human-centric perspective and animals have their meaning and their purpose independent of what humans think their meaning and purpose should be. Um, I have seen how many of them in the name of loving animals they end hating human race. <laughs> you really, really heavily, like hating. Well, they, I think they would probably say they hate you. Abuses. As yeah, yeah. From the human centric perspective. But, um, like I say, it seems to uh, want to do away with this the Tosca region 
as I'm referring to it, between the wild and the civilized, where there's nourishment that uh, for, for both for both sides. So what's your explanation of pets then? Okay. Yeah, I both pets get something out of it. Yes, okay. Therefore, they didn't have an explanation. And maybe they will say that cows are not to be domesticated, but dogs are prone to domestication, something like they establish the line there, basically. Well, that's arbitrary. Yeah. And the deep ecology, of course, is a philosophical shift from a human-centric perspective to an ecocentric perspective, mm -hmm. and you're all equally parts of the, of the whole system. Each part, even the smallest one, is, in, is as important as, as the other. If you take a tiny you know, chip out of the computer, the whole thing can break, you know, or not work, and so forth. So that's uh, that's uh, uh, has value, virtue, and that idea comes from um, a Norwegian philosopher that was influenced by, by Gandhiism. Gandhi's, mm -hmm. you know, um, environmental perspective, this perspective on industry and so forth, the idea that industry should not take people out of work but increase the work that one person can do. Um, you find a lot of that in Prabhupada's first canto, let's go for it, this very Gandhian talking about the earth and the milk from the cows muddying the fields and, and it's a very a lot of gandhi and themes in there but um, <coughs> you know still the human part is still pretty uh, Significant. I mean, I don't see how you can, as opposed to other species, not see the humans as stewards. They're more powerful than responsibility. As their role, yeah. Well, maybe they do see that. To acknowledge the wholeness, the whole system, and, you know, live in accordance with that. Good idea. But that's deep ecology. Yeah. And what's been promoted in the world is kind of a superficial ecology. Stop pollution. Still anthropocentric. Yeah, so that humans who are wealthy can live better off. But then again, even superficial might be good at this point. <laughs> Do something. Stave off the the, uh, the uh, nature's reaction to being abused. You were going to say? No. Something? No. I think you should. We are studying um, in Colorado. We are studying these national parks where they took the local tribes out of it <coughs> in these different countries to try to completely preserve the land. Um, and they actually found that the humans were like part of the ecosystem there. That when they took the tribes out, 
this part wasn't being organized as it was before and the ecosystem kind of completely changed and, um, for the worse uh -huh. in some cases. There's a great video, mini movie that I saw, some of you may have seen it, about the wolves mm -hmm. somewhere yeah. in Yellowstone. Yeah, I think about the apex predators that everything breaks down. Well, they had been taken out, so they re they re they re re replaced yeah. them. Just incredible the differences. Right. Right. It's just un it's just mind blowing, you know, what that one piece uh, added. How significant. You don't have stories like the pachetas who burned the whole forest. Right? Sometimes you got to burn forest. Agni does that. He starts fires. Yeah. Yeah, he's doing real good in California these days. Yeah, he's, <laughs> this time of year. There's some fires again close to Aldaria. Geyserville. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's scary is like they, they showed pictures of how there's just showers of sparks being driven by the wind across the road. It's how the fire jumps the road. Heavy winds, yeah. Yeah, and it's like not even flames, it's just like rivers of sparks. Just yeah. Next thing you know, you know, boom. They tell you now it's so brittle it don't even don't even use a chainsaw or anything like that. Spark. Spark, yeah. One spark. Burn thousands of acres. Were you were you at Mato at Audari uh, when that fire came? On, uh, on the opposite ridge? Yeah. I was living in Stockholm and you called me from Audubon. You're like, can you go up there and, you know, do some cutting and make the place defensible? And so I went up and... Uh-huh, I was in, because I was at Audubon for yeah. time, yeah. Yeah, you must have been like, what? Yeah. But that was real. That was like... Yeah. Real. And Murli was there and he told me the, the yeah. scenario he was having. And every night, as it got dark, you could see the fire line lower and lower on the opposite ridge. And it was like, and they kept saying, if it jumps across, we have to be evacuated. Yeah, here's Audaria. It's right at the edge. End of the road, the edge, and then down. There's a creek, and then up. And the fire was up here. It was mm -hmm. coming down, coming down. Of course, it comes down slower. Right. But if it jumps the creek, then it goes up, up a lot fast. quicker. Yeah. Every day, the neighbors were at the property watching. You know, yeah. and we'll, you know, we, had to evacuate. we had to evacuate all the animals and everything. The mm -hmm. <laughs> tie were down at the end. Yeah. Yeah. This is all, you know, the climate denialists will say, well, we have nothing to do with it, but it's not actually the case. Um, this is all happened like the fires that you get in California pretty much every year now. You only happen once every hundred or two hundred years. Yeah, I don't, I don't see how you can, whatever the details may be, industrialization is something that, you know, is, 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 is significant in what it what it puts out, yeah. it's, 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 uh, hasn't been done before, you know, tons. never yeah. been done before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that people want to say, well, you know, the earth is a big place and we're small. It's like, no, we have an impact. Yeah. <coughs> this one, this one fellow said to me that, well, it's a uh, climate change is atheistic because it believes that man has the power to destroy the world, and only God can destroy the world. Right. Man is not that helpful. 
<laughs> simplistic, primitive, <laughs> theistic idea. First of all, we're not saying that climate change is going to ch is going to end the uh, world, but it could. It may end us. Yeah, it could change. It could make it less habitable. Yeah, much less. And and, and require people to relocate and. Uh, Some species are already, you know, have already disappeared. Yeah. So. 200 times the background extinction rate. That's not good. What's that now? 200 times the background extinction rate for certain species. How does that, what does that mean? It means prior to industrialization, there was uh -huh. species would go extinct periodically, as they always will. Mm -hmm. The rate of that, the, that original 200 rate times. 200 times the moment. Wow. How many per day? They say some number. Yeah, I don't know what the figure is exactly. Like 500 species per like day I burn sting, some wild things like this. Wow. Well, the number of wild animals in the world has declined by 50% since 1970. I've always wanted to go up uh, to Alaska uh, trip just because there's so much, it's so much more like, like the whole North America used to be, like 100 years ago, and you can just, you know, herds of elk and mooses and mm -hmm. birds and, you know, it's, yeah, it's really diminished. Mm -hmm. We've got a good 90 degree weather now in Anchorage, Alaska. Wow. In fact, you know, the scientists who are actually studying this stuff for the last 50 years, they say we've entered a different epoch, geologically speaking, called the Anthropocene. Hmm. The age of humans. In other words, humans have brought changes, brought mm -hmm. about changes that will last for hundreds of thousands of years. It's, you know, it's a pretty sobering thought. Yeah. Not for the better, unfortunately. And every single environmental adjustment, legislation, in order to protect the environment has has been ar arrived at by a huge struggle. You need, you know, pounds and tons of propaganda, you know, preaching to just move a little something a, a little bit. And then these people look at the, well, you know, cars have less emission now, you know, than they did before. You know, we're doing pretty good, you know. And, and what do we need, you know, people clamoring about, you know, climate change? Well, if they hadn't been doing that, those changes wouldn't have, wouldn't have happened. Even those. Mm -hmm. People still be throwing stuff out the window. Yeah. You know? Shocking. When I was a kid and we first got my driver's license at 16, you know, people would do that. This was in, in the Midwest, but they just, you know, it was like, just, you, you finish your drink, you know, whatever, from a fast food place, or whatever, just throw it out. Hmm. That was normal. Yeah. And then I remember the first signs came up littering, you know, $50 fine or something like that. When I was a kid, my mom worked for Reed and Barton Silver Company, Taunton, Mass, right next door to my, where I grew up. And prior to the EPA, they would dump heavy metals into the river, the Taunton River, regularly. That's how they got rid of their industrial waste. Uh -huh. It's like, okay, so now you got a guy in the office who wants to get rid of the EPA and basically unleash industries. Full destructive power, like mm -hmm. no regulation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. You think that's a good idea? Mm, probably not. It's a pity that that uh, upon getting Swaraj liberation, 
from the British, which was what was quite a struggle to accomplish and uh, very much uh, fueled and energized by Gandhi's resistance. It's a, it's it's a pity that the country didn't then follow a Gandhian perspective. Not at all. Instead, what's his name, Nehru, became the prime minister, and he just you know he he kind of went on implicitly with you know requiring British approval for everything to be you know so it's that world view in other words Westernization. Yeah, because you can just just imagine. If the Gandhian perspective had just been in the fiber of the Indian, you know, republic's constitution as a way of life and so forth, it could be a dream place that would be like, in the whole world, it would be just like shining, you know, like a, like a, like a stunning, uh, compelling example. Right? Both philosophically and materially, yeah. That was my idea for Mayapur, too, because Prabhupada wanted to bring thousands of people to Mayapur. Right? Lord Chaitanya's birthplace. That's his basic idea behind the, you know, the big temple. He wanted the community there, and he wanted them living in a, in a, a lifestyle that would speak to the whole world. Hmm? And, you know, he had certain ideas how to bring that about, but... Um, it's not that he didn't want input from his Western uh, students, but how you know how that might be, be, be accomplished and so forth. He had some core ideas that were uh, significant. You know, he was he was insightful enough to understand that scientific materialism was a big problem. Hmm? That kind of propaganda, like you know, I'm, I'm always talking about it. We don't want to stand, you know, can't reduce the mind to the brain or consciousness to the brain and so on and so forth. He didn't use that kind of terminology, but um, that was a central concern for him. And um, it's 10.30. Oh, <laughs> so soon. Well, we'll go a little further. And then he had some idea that, you know, how you might accomplish that. So I, I think you have to look at this, what he wanted to accomplish and then look at the world you know, now, and then think how, how that you might might do that. And, and I think it would be very different than what they've done. I mean, that's just me talking, but my idea was like, okay, instead of a big temple that you form, not let's say nine temples hmm, on nine islands, you know, in, in, in Navadweep, you know, you, you designate these are the islands, these are the islands, and so forth. And you, and you make them, and you hire, because they're going to spend like $100 million on the temple. So you've got a budget, you know, $100 million. And then you hire, there was a fellow, he was, a, there is a fellow, he's a brother of a godbrother of mine named Drista Dumna. Some of you may have met him, I don't know. But his brother is a famous environmental engineer or something like that. He's like really like... He's got a big budget to burn to come up just to think of ideas, you know, like candy wrappers that you throw and they automatically are biodegradable, you know, all kinds of stuff. He's quite famous. So, um, and at one time he, he was, he's sympathetic to the devotees, and one time he was asked to give a plan for Gita Nagar, 
how to set it up. And they hired him, and I think he did a plan, but they never put it in place. But at any rate, hire somebody like that, you know, or a team of guys like that. And you're going to go into this Ganga Delta and create little villages based, centered around the temples that are all that and all the structures fit in and are environmentally sound and they are something that the local people can also do to improve right so you actually go in there and and, and bring your western sensibilities to a sacred place that's that's you know suffering environmentally you set it up like that and then um, and then you have you know some exhibits with central themes like you know the whole idea that consciousness is not reducible to matter and you talk about it in different ways and exhibits like that because to me that's like the core if you want to attack scientific materialism that's where to go because that's its weakest weakest that's its Achilles heel mm -hmm. that's the gap you know, they, they call it the, uh, what do they call it? The explanation gap. The explanation gap. You know, they think it's like about an inch away, and it's about as wide as the Pacific Ocean, you know, in terms of connecting, you know, they're, they're completing their explanation to demonstrate definitively that consciousness is just um, a function of the brain. So, you know, you, you, you press on that, and then you make this... Place that places that the whole community of all the local people they're just like enthused to participate in it and you're not flashing about you know you'd have to spend a lot of money on it but it's not spending money in ways that that cause local people to want to have that money and you're living in a, you know in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's different than everybody else lives you know, because ostentatious. Because you've got more money, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I'm just giving a sketch here, but something, something like that, you know. And then, you know, in that, that in the, the Ganga Delta, you know, who wanted to do something like that was Aurobindo. Mm. Hmm? He did it. Where is it? Yogaville. Not Yogaville. Auroville. Auroville. Yeah. yeah. Auroville. He's, he's, he wanted to start a, some type of uh, community, something like that. Had an environmental sensibilities. That was quite, quite some time ago. I met a couple somewhere recently who, who tried to live there. It didn't, it didn't work out for them. I forget why. And I looked into it. I had known about it, but at the time I looked into it a little bit more. But something, you know, like that, and then if you have a hundred million dollars to spend, that's a fair amount of money. <clears throat> hmm? Not spending it all on rebar and, you know, huge, huge temple. You could make nice, nice, nice nine nice temples. Yeah, unfortunately, seminars going to be on, you know, on these kind of issues, pardon me? Unfortunately, the Gunga Delta within the next hundred years is going to be underwater. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 and you, 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 you splash a lot of money like that, and already you see the Bengalis are envious. Mm. 
they're envious. They want, you know, control, power. There's so much money. Money brings overt displays of money and opulence. Hmm? Rather than spreading it out, you know. See, there's no one place that's just, you know, rich. In contrast, it next door is poor. Hmm? And, and you and you and you spend, invest money in helping the local people, and you, and you, you meet them on their you know, on their terms where their necessities are, and they become devotees you know, and their life becomes better. It still remains simple, you know, but simple is better, and, and they understand it and so forth. Rather than dumping a lot of money in one place, that's really a, a recipe for corruption. Yeah, it creates envy and <clears throat> greed. And so, and then if you do things like poison people's land because they won't sell it to you, so that they can't farm on it anymore, and then then buy it for peanuts. That doesn't endear you to the local people too much. Practically stupid. Short term thinking. Very short term, yeah. I'm not sure that it, it attracts the rest of the world in the way that you want either. What do you mean? It just There's so much material opulence, you know, like Dubai as is. Oh, as is, you mean. Yeah. Exactly. So you, right. you can't, yeah. you can never really compete on that level right. to any large degree. So if you say you 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 do something that's incredibly materially opulent, it, you may get some attention for a minute, but yeah. the rest of the world just kind of moves on. They they find a new designer drug or whatever it is that they're going to be into. And like you say, it's just impossible to compete. A hundred million dollars is nothing. Yeah, you know, to compete with what what even the Catholics could do. You know, right. if they wanted to build a, you know rebuild a Sistine Chapel or something, you know, it would be whatever. Yeah, and also what it what it what it does do is that then in local people, Bengalis, Indians, that they, 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 they then they want to want to live like that, you know, mm -hmm. have more money, and and so it's kind of sending the wrong message in a way. I yeah. mean, I it seems like the opposite of what. Yeah. They're trying to. Yeah. Can you know to tell people, but then. Yeah, on one hand doing this, but seeing something opposite. Yeah. opposite. Yeah. yeah. And if you're trying to attract people, I mean, what type of people are you going to attract? A huge, yeah. wealthy building. <laughs> yeah. Sure you'll attract some, but for not for good reason. People are not uh, re reacting nicely <laughs> to this combination of, like, a lot of money and spirituality. Like, people yeah. don't... It doesn't yeah. make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, as far as the rest of the world goes, like you say, it's just like, who wants to go there? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they built some monstrosity, you know. But then you get there and you can't go, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you get there and there's no sex. There's no, there's no nightclub. Why, why go? Well, there's pizza. <laughs> and there are nightclubs also. <laughs> and all the other things are much worse, for sure. It seems like it's this idea trying really hard, like you were saying, to attract people. I've even, over the years, we always ran into that with 
the farming aspect. The Bodies wanted to farm, but only for the reason to attract people. They, no one was really mm -hmm. interested in living like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were interested in us living in a shack mm -hmm. while they all lived yeah. in big and then houses. They would, yeah, and then they would say, they <laughs> would point to us to and they'd say, us. this is how we live. And <laughs> look, we have cows. Yeah, they would always be like that. Like a zoo. Yeah, yeah, like a zoo. Meanwhile, exactly right. <laughs> anyway, I won't say where. Uh, at the place, uh -huh. <laughs> there was big houses. Uh -huh. <laughs> and anyway. Yeah. We'll build you a shack out of pallets. Mm -hmm. You can live there, and then people will be attracted. They'll come see how simply you're living. And yeah. The cows, and, mm -hmm. and you're like, mm, no. So that they'll become devotees. The whole thing's disconnected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's trickery. Yeah. 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 Well, it's a misunderstanding. It's a total misunderstanding. Of, it's not an integrated understanding of what Krishna consciousness and a supportive agrarian-based lifestyle, you know involves and what it, what, it, what it calls on them for, you know, for them to change well, themselves. Well, people who are really looking for something, they see through that. They, yeah. They're like, yeah. oh, well, this is not what I was looking for. Right, right. This is just a show. Right, right. It's not really... Identify themselves as spiritual, non-religious. Yeah. They don't want anything to do with all that money and power. Mm. There's a godbrother of mine named Dianon. He's a nice man. Older disciple of Prabhupada, he's he's very enthused to preach these days, and he's come up with this approach like uh, Vaishnavism is a is a pop uh, 200 million whatever it is 300 million population that has a solution to the environmental problem, and of course it's centered on Namsan Kirtan, which takes away greed which is the cause of the whole problem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he tries to market it like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, mean, I don't agree with, disagree with the premise, but, you know, first thing is, well, and then 300 million <laughs> uh, go to your Vaishnavas. You need to tell them that, you know. <laughs> uh, especially some of them in this country, you know, in the Western world, that have very... Um, you know, they're, they're, well, climate change deniers even, you know? Sure. Lots of them. I mean, maybe even, you know, four out of ten or something like that. It's, uh, again, you got to preach to the, to your base. Get them, get them to agree with your philosophy. <laughs> and, you know, set an example. Well, some devotees did, but also recent, like, well... Like climate change is a part of the Kaliuga ecology. So, yeah, it's like that. Let it be. Like it's not a question of letting it be. It's a question of uh, participating in it yeah. and helping it to make it happen or not, you know. Mm. I, you know, it's an ethical yeah. consideration. Mm -hmm. is, is it, are the humans and 
devotees stewards of the land and the environment? And uh, if so, you know, are they living up to that position? So you hmm. say, no, this let it be, it's being, but it's become. There is also becoming. Yeah. So let it become also. Yeah. <laughs> You know, they're part of the. If they're not part of the solution, there they're part of the problem. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no like, just let it happen. You know, yeah, that's, that's letting it happen. <laughs> making it happen. Part of it, so you should just let that happen. Pardon me. Well, by that logic, the age of Kali is all about hypocrisy, quarrel. So should we just let that? Let happen? it all happen. Yeah. No problem. Mm. How you relate to the to the bigger picture will also like influence your individual picture. picture. Yeah. yeah, all those individual relations form the big picture. Devotees like Dayananda that would do better, I think, connecting with other groups of Eastern thought, even though they have philosophical differences, connecting with them on the common ground of these type of, you know, like environmental sensibilities which he's, which he's focused on. Because they're also Agree, greed is a problem. It's not that the Buddhists don't say that. Not that the other yoga groups don't say that. They all say that. And I imagine most it's of not them. Just, oh, it's not, not, we're not the only people in the world that think, mm. you know, excess greed is. Even non theistic people think that. Mm. But, you know, it's, it's pretty uh, disturbing to me to see if you go, I believe, if you were to. Investigate every other Eastern philosophically influenced sect group. I think you would find, like, across the board, every member of every one of these sects was uh, in agreement that uh, there's environmental crisis and we should, you know, play our part. Hmm? Every single one of them. It's only the devotees where you're going to find, you know, 40 or 30 or 50 percent of them are on the opposite page. Just like, what? You know, it doesn't compute. So, I don't know how you're going to convert them. <laughs> Better to get strength in numbers by connecting on some level with people who agree. Mm -hmm. And then within that, you can shine, you know, with your own beautiful philosophy that will, you know, come out in discussions and whatnot. And, and if you've got great kirtaniers, you like kirtan, you know, so. I mean, the, uh, you, you get a very strong sense from Chaitanya Charitamrita of how much more interconnected and less sectarian, in one sense, were the Gaudias. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. They were part of a population, and there were other, other sampradayas and spiritual groups. They were all interested in some kind of, you know, mukti, and they were all, you know, obviously embraced. Uh, the doctrines of reincarnation and so on and so forth, and, and uh, I mean, you know, all the, the main root 
sannyasis to the metaphorical purple tree of bhakti in Chaitanya Charitamrita, they are all probably Advaitins or, or probably all Advaitins who came to Mahaprabhu and, and of course they, they converted to his thinking and so forth, but <clears throat> he's not like, oh, oh, they're my buddies, don't let them in, you know, or don't, don't touch them or, you know, keep away from them or, mm. You know, if you want to, if you get other people that agree that consciousness is not reducible, okay, it's one of your, you know, bottom lines, then let's work on that, you know, convincing the world of that. And then within that, then there's a further discussion. Right? What's nature transcendence? Is there an Atma or is there only one just big soul or whatever? And those are really interesting discussions and we can make a compelling case, but it's always going to be other people who don't have your particular faith, but at least they could agree on some, have enough common ground that we could, you know, live without fighting with one another. I mean, because this is a huge divide, climate change or no climate change. And they're ready to, you know, the, the no climate changers, they're, they're, they're ready to, you know, they're to fight, you know. So to speak. There's a there's a point where you need to be stridently sectarian, and you do see that in Chaitanya Charitamrita philosophically also. Where Krishna is establishing a sect. This is who we are. This is the orthodox teaching, and this is not. And this is left out. And you know we don't accept. You know you have to do that. Um, but there's also a point where, it, where it's useful to be ecumenical. You see that in, you see that in Bhakti Vinod. You see an ecumenical spirit in Bhakti Vinod, then you see a sectarian spirit in Bhakti Siddhanta. Hmm? But they're both seeking to accomplish the same thing and have assessed the circumstances um, and then developed a strategy to, you know, to accomplish it, even though they look opposite hmm? for some time. You know? So now you, you take that kind of down to comparatively was more stridently sectarian. But, you know, so are we supposed to do like that forever? That's to be, that's to be determined, you know, by the farm for all, how to, where, where to go, you know, or even just preaching. There a point where we can become excessive and and um, result in the same thing that the preaching was trying to um, address. For example, if you have a situation where there are people giving initiation and they, they don't really give any siksha, they don't maybe even know that teaching that well, it's become more of a hereditary thing, let's say, and so you put all this emphasis on siksha, book publishing, preaching, and so forth, and uh, and then after a couple of generations, it becomes a little more caustic, you know, because you're interpreting the founder's innovative perspectives and so forth with your own conditioned uh, mind and so forth, 
and uh, so going to get like tied into this sectarian perspective and emphasis on preaching where, you know, bhajan becomes maya, you know, <laughs> sitting down becomes, just, you know, just, a, you know, and then, 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 it's, then, 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 it, then it comes to a point where the preaching is losing sight of what it's preaching for. And the people who are preaching are just, they're not you know, developing themselves just to internally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just becomes, they lose the plot, you know, so to speak. That can happen. Then you have to address that. So there are these swings of the pendulum according to time and circumstances. Well, you need to do a proper, otherwise things get frozen and becomes the group becomes irrelevant. Becomes irrelevant to the public because it's not doing for the group itself what it's intended to do. People see that, and people see it exactly. Mm -hmm. They're not attracted to it. So you can have less philosophy if you have more examples. <laughs> I mean, one of the things about early days of ISKCON is that people were joining, like I was saying the other night, to transform. They weren't adding something on to their, their life. They were already like, you know, okay, well, throw me in the fire, you know. Cook me and, you know, and offer me. Uh, I'm raw, you know. So that's, that's attractive. Hmm? It can be attractive. It was attractive at the time when the, 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 the time of the time was very much like change and, you know, alternative culture, alternative perspective. It was radical. It was like way out there, you know. Revolution. Revolution, yeah. And then the bodies were happy. You know, they were happy and they had very little. I mean, <laughs> what we had to eat was, you know, we used to eat on a wax cake, piece of, piece, piece of wax paper. And they put some hot oatmeal on it. If you didn't eat it fast enough, it would, the paper would melt. Because we couldn't afford plates. <laughs> and you get like, I think, like four chickpeas and a piece of orange and a piece of ginger. <laughs> that was your breakfast, you know? And you know, we didn't think about it, you know? We, we were and, you know, <laughs> feeding on something else, you know? I mean, not that. Prashadam wasn't a big thing for people, but it was austere at times. When I, I joined, we had really had we had one really square meal a day. It was a Sunday, mm. and we would go out and to the market and beg food and whatnot. And then we would prepare the prepare the Sunday feast. Every other day was, you know, what we could afford, and we couldn't afford very much. And that was in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Going to preaching center, but you know, it, it, it never like I was hungry sometimes, but it didn't bother me because I was, you know, we had a higher hunger, higher hunger, yeah, <laughs> higher hunger. Do you think that Kainaragya was attractive to new people? Yeah, it was very attractive. 
time. Now people don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. That's that's you know you, 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 that was part of the partly the. I mean, we were already people. We were already living on the streets, you know. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think one of the big pushbacks against any sort of comprehensive solution to climate change, realistic solution, is that people don't want to have their standards of living reduced in any way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, that's what it requires, unfortunately. You know, for basically the entire wealthy world to voluntarily relinquish their standards of living. And that's highly unlikely. Right. In Venezuela, the, when I was there last time. Dream. Right, it's a nightmare though, for the world. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what about the people like in the Amazon who are you know, burning down hundreds of thousands of acres a year just to feed cows to export beef? You know, it's like yeah. it's a broken system. Yeah. In Venezuela, the, the when I was there last time, there, I mean, the society was at the brink of falling apart. But the temple was thriving. Hmm. So it was an interesting dynamic to see that it's like I, I kind of like got hope there. Oh, this, this is a, like a miniature of what can happen for, say, mm -hmm. crash. The, the main temple. Yeah, the main temple, Takur and, and his crew, they were growing, many people coming, donating but, food. But now it's not the same. It's today, not the same? No. Okay. Because he was mainly sustaining the temple like with 20 brahmacharis who were collecting outside Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And all those brahmacharis are not oh. anymore there. So Artificial from the country itself, income. difficult. Mm. I don't know the details nowadays, but I know that it was like that. But Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, like Hopefully they sustain somehow or other because yeah. it's a big place. It was a university before. The point is that you can thrive with less. Mm. Yeah create a situation where you can thrive with less and you'll be happy. And then when everybody else has less, you know, and they're, they're, they're distressed yeah. and you're not, then you have a good example. At that time also I heard that the people were very healthy in, in Venezuela because there were no junk food and everyone was eating fruits, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's like tropical yeah. climate, you know. They were also eating their pets. They were miserable because they wanted to have a better quality of life, no? but still, like, health was there, you know. <laughs> I don't know how it is now, though. <laughs> like we mentioned, you mentioned it's good thriving with less, because for most people, thriving implies more, not less. Yeah. You say thri thriving is a word? Yeah. With less? Yeah. But for most people, thriving implies with yeah. more. You need more, yeah. You need more to thrive. So it's change of the equation in itself. <laughs> and interestingly, the pendulum is like swinging. So the, the countries who, say, started industrialization first are the... They've, they're now on the other side of the curve. They're finding out that there's downsides to it, and so they're trying to cut back and whatnot and consume less. And then the developing countries like India are like, what are you guys talking about? You're asking us to cut our emissions, but we haven't even developed to the state you guys are at. What do you, you know, yeah. that's, and then uh, the prime minister of India 
at the when uh, during the Paris Accords, he was a holdout. He did not want to sign it because he thought, well, the rich West is asking us to basically bear the brunt of what they have done. Mm. And so he's like, no, we're going to burn coal so that I can bring my my country out of poverty. That's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when that becomes the standard, right? You know, can't blame him. Right. Exactly. So really, our model, though, if there's ever going to be a solution, which there's no doubt, but it would need to be. <laughs> it needs to be like massive propaganda to re-educate people that simplicity is actually a value, not a bad thing. Voluntary simplicity, rather than you know, imposed by the government or anything like that. Educate people from the time that they're born that you know you don't need much materially. Sounds like Satyajit. <laughs> it also sounds like Canada. you've got a majority of people, vast majority of people in industrialized nations that won't buy into that, mm -hmm. and because they're the majority, they've got the, the entire rest of the world practically that's undeveloped. Um, Thinking also, that should that should be the standard. Good luck, yeah. getting them to change their thinking. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you, don't, you those who get it shouldn't, you know, live accordingly or try try to. But even that's hard, you know. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then then you get criticism. Oh, you guys are. You're talking about the environment, you still fly in airplanes, you drive cars, yeah. like, well, you can't, mm -hmm. the yes. way the system is set up, you cannot basically yeah. avoid that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, for, for thousands of years. Thousands of years, nature's had its own way of dealing with the problems. You know, yeah, humans are the problem, so it didn't take much of her to respond. Then you also get this contingent, or just if you try to put forth any sort of these ideas like this, they say well, you guys are just anti-human. You want to, you know, you want to take us back to the Stone Age. You guys are Luddites. You know, do away with everything that we've accomplished. And, yeah. You know, the last 200 years that we raised standards of living and increased uh, birth rates. And Nothing like putting words in somebody's mouth. <laughs> and increased cancer and all kinds. Nobody's any healthier. No one's really living much longer. Infant mortality is like. It's, on the it's rise like a again. third world country in America. Oh, really? Especially if you're a black woman. Yeah, it's on the rise again. Oh, yeah. Really? Huh. And the mother's mortality. Like, if you're a black woman giving birth in America, it, you're, you'd be better off if you go off in the woods and do it by yourself or go somewhere else. Hmm. 
really bad. Because they don't have sufficient health care? They don't have sufficient health care. There's poverty. They, mm -hmm. There's racism. They go in the hospital and they just get ignored and they say, oh, wow. this is not, I don't feel right. Mm -hmm. Something's happening and no one does anything about it until, mm -hmm. you know, they're already too far. They can't save them ever. Yeah, money's the whole thing, problem. isn't it? There's one quote that Richard wrote, you for all this, he said, most of us are mainly concerned with successful survival. He said, huh? mm -hmm. Like surviving, but in being successful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just surviving. Privatize everything. Mm. <laughs> so we're just looking at this one study on doctors who are not like outright racist people, but there's just this unconscious bias they have where they treat colored people with like basically insufficient treatment. Yeah. Wow. They, they just implicitly think I should give white people more. They deserve less. less. Yeah. Or like a teacher where like give more attention to the white student. Like these people aren't outright racist, but it's just kind of this yeah. vibe thing. Yeah. <laughs> they don't even realize it. Yeah, perhaps. They're even worse. Huh? <laughs> They've actually done studies to show like almost everyone has some implicit bias. Like there's these online tests where they associate like white names with good qualities and black names with violence, and then they switch the two, and people get like very confused lining them up. And hmm. Very interesting. You want to come at 11 15 now? 11 15? 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 11 15. 